Welcome to Testify It, where we are sharing the love of Christ and building people up through testimonies and teaching. Our passion is to share how God is working in people's lives today. My name is Christopher Wagner, and I'm a founder and board member at Testify It. In this series of testimonies, we are working in partnership with Peace Ministries, a biblical counseling and teaching ministry whose founders have been in ministry for over 50 years. Today, we have an amazing testimony from Zach Muircreeps. Zach grew up in a strict religious home. However, he found true freedom in Christ. My name is Zach Muircreeps, and um, I always feel like when I start a testimony like this, I feel like it's like the beginning of a movie because I always start off, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. And uh, growing up in an Orthodox Jewish home, um, we weren't only um, practicing Jews, but we were also um, a family that took our faith and our heritage very, very seriously because of the history of our family. My great-grandma was in the pogroms, which if you guys don't know what that means, that's like Fiddler on the Roof story. And then um, after they got through the pogroms, I went back to their hometown, um, and that's when the Holocaust occurred. So a lot of my family has uh, had stories of the ghettos or even concentration camps. Um, so we weren't just practicing Jews, but we were Jews that took great pride in what we had been through. And uh, that was a culture I grew up in. And uh, at that time, every male in my family on my mother's side was um, a rabbi or a cantor, which a cantor is like a worship leader in a synagogue, um, except my uncle and then uh, my father. Um, but we grew up, I was born in the D.C. area, but after a couple years, um, we ended up in Colorado Springs, which was a unique place for a Orthodox Jewish family to end up because how I put it is it's almost like a Christian Mecca has focused on the family, has compassion, focused on the family, has a big old green four-story green slide. And I remember as a little boy driving by, focused on the family and desiring to go down that slide because who doesn't want to go down that slide? I'm 27 years old. I still want to go down that slide. <laughs> and my mom saying, you can't go down that slide because Jesus is going to get you at the end. And, uh, and that was kind of how I grew up. I grew up with this fear of Christians and this fear of Jesus because it was going to, they were going to trick me and they were going to get me. And, um, so growing up that way, um, I really kind of kept my distance. I remember, uh, crazy times, like we would have the Christmas special at elementary school and my mom would be the mom that walks into the principal's office and declares that they needed to do a Hanukkah song. So it would be my brother and I on stage singing a Hanukkah song, like the only two kids in the whole show. And all these poor kids and parents had to watch these two Jewish kids uh, <laughs> sing dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. But uh, growing up that way, um, socially, we looked like we had it all together, um, couldn't be vulnerable, couldn't be authentic. Uh, but ever since I can remember, my dad was really, really struggling with anger and substance abuse. But also was a VP at a very, very successful um, organization and was an elder uh, in um, at our synagogue and kind of running the youth group at the synagogue. But he was struggling with substance abuse. And then um, 
was physically and emotional, uh, emotionally abusive to me. My big brother is about three years older than me and has autism. So um, dad didn't really ever um, attack him. But that's how we grew up. Just this abundance of fear, um, but also performance. We had to keep everything together. Um, which ultimately, um, as I read scripture and I learn more and more about Judaism, it really is this performance-based thing, um, which really created this like piece of a DNA, not the original design of my DNA that God made, but this lie that I believed from the enemy that I had to perform, um, which I'll touch on later. So growing up in that, um, our house was just a place of brokenness. There was affairs on both my mom and dad. I would come home from school and there'd be strange men in the house. Um, or I would walk in to my dad's office and there was things on the computer screen. It was just intense brokenness. And then they got divorced. And for some apparent reason, I, you know, I don't really understand. Uh, my dad won custody, even though, um, he was, they were suspicious of abuse. So, um, around third grade is when I started living with my dad, uh, more on a regular basis. And that's when sexual abuse started. So, um, starting from third grade all the way to my freshman year in high school, there was intense sexual abuse. And I just assumed that that was normal for the younger son. Um, so I didn't really say anything, even in, in, in school, you know, you, you hear about abuse and, um, I just didn't assume what my dad was doing was abuse just because I didn't know. Um, but I was still going to Hebrew school. I was even talking about going to rabbinical school at some point. And um, I had my bar mitzvah um, when I was 13. And I just remember I was so excited for my bar mitzvah because everyone told me that that's when the relationship was going to start with God. And that I would experience intimacy and I would be a man. So now God could speak to me. And really it was me freaking out because I had to memorize a Torah proportion in Hebrew. My voice broke tons, but I got like 8,000 bucks in a killer party. So I was super excited about that. So coming out of that, though, I was so disappointed that I walked away from synagogue and really any sort of faith. I was still getting abused by my dad. But really, at age 13, that's when I really started turning into all this, all the cliche sins of this world of girls and drugs and drinking and even getting very much into drugs um, at age 13. Um, I remember moving marijuana on my Razor scooter in my backpack because um, no one would... Um, no one would think a 13-year-old kid on a Razor scooter was moving a, a crazy amount of weed for people. But uh, that's how I grew up. Um, and then my freshman year in high school, I remember playing a video game with, my, with my, my good friend. And he asked what I was doing that weekend. And I told him what my dad and I had been doing on the weekends. And it... And it was the first time that I told someone what was going on. And it was the first time someone really kind of kicked down the door into my life and said, what's going on in your life is not right. You don't do those things with your dad on the weekends. And uh, so I was extremely grateful for Sam Stevenson. Um, 
who had that extremely awkward and hard conversation with me. And really at that point, freshman year in high school is when I told my dad I never wanted to talk to him again. Very angry. Um, yeah, just extremely intense point in my life. So I started living with my mom. And going into my sophomore year, I was still selling drugs quite a bit and messing around with girls, um, which led to a, a relationship I had with um, a gal that um, I did not know what I was doing, but I aided um, in her overdosing. And then um, on November 29th, 2006, uh, I found my girlfriend um, who had committed suicide on drugs that I had provided for. Um, so at that point, kind of, I had the vision of being in like a giant swimming pool and I had been slowly sinking my whole life and I got to the bottom of the pool at that point and I remember it felt like God was telling me in which I didn't even have a relationship with God at that time, but God telling me, you can stay here for the rest of your life or you can go as hard as you can towards the service and take a deep breath. And around that time, there were so many Christian men and women that surrounded me. And I started asking questions. I started asking questions. I went to a Bible study that um, turns out that the Bible study was being led by the now president of Navigators, um, Doug Nunkey, who really introduced me to scripture and, and created this deep love for scripture. So I asked my friend for his Bible and I would hide in my bedroom at home and blast like rap music or um, rock music, but listen to Hillsong United in my earphones and uh, read the Bible um, so my parents wouldn't know. Um, I went to Fellowship of Christian Athletes and when I heard that gospel, it I went back to what I heard earlier in my life, like Jesus was going to get me, that Christians were going to trick me. So I, even though I had asked for the Bible, I had gone to a fellowship of Christian athletes, I hid from any Christian I knew. Um, I would go to school, to soccer practice, to home, but I would read my Bible the whole time. And after about four months of hiding from any Christian I knew, and in Colorado Springs, that's pretty hard because it seems like everyone is a Christian. Um, it was a pretty lonely four months. Uh, I remember asking my friend Jeff Taylor if I could go to Starbucks with him and ask some questions. And I came in like a full-on job interview. I did not want to have any friendly conversation. I was asking him two questions or three questions. I said, in your Bible, it seems like I'm going to hell if I don't have Jesus in my heart. Is that true? And Jeff Taylor was bold and scripturally sound. And he said, yes, without Jesus, uh, you'd go to hell. Second question for a Jew, I said, so if Hitler gives his life to Christ, would he go to heaven? And Jeff had a harder time answering that question, but I believe he gave an extremely scriptural answer. And then second, I said, if my mom doesn't give her life to Jesus, are you saying that my mom is destined to hell? And he said, yes. So I said, thank you. And I left. And uh, that started a journey about um, a year-long journey of going to any Bible study I could get to, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, um, a couple Bible studies in different houses. And then I would tell my mom I would sleep over at friends' houses on Saturday night so I could go to church in the morning. Um, but my mom didn't know. 
So on the one year anniversary, exactly one year after I, uh, without knowing, helped my girlfriend at the time commit suicide on November 2029, um, the year after, during a snowstorm, I went on a walk and I surrendered my heart to Jesus mm. fully. Um, and I gave my life to the Lord. And I remember immediately Jesus said, this is not good news. This is the best news you've ever heard. And you're going to tell everyone about him for the rest of your life. Which to me, I didn't, I said, okay, wait a second. Does that mean evangelism? Cause I'm not, I'm not, I'm not about evangelism because evangelism to me was 18 billion people asking me to go to youth group every Wednesday night because I was the Jewish kid that sold weed. So any youth pastor wanted me to be at their youth group. But that's not really what evangelism is. Evangelism is is the best news in the world. And I say that to my church. I say that to my friends. I say, my wife making dinner, that's good news. My wife doing my laundry, that's good news, which I do the laundry most of the time. But I have a beautiful daughter named Eden May Miracreeps, and that is some of the greatest news I've ever, ever experienced. But the best news in the world, nothing compares to the best news in the world, which is Christ on the cross for me and for you. And uh, you can't run away from it. And that's the best news ever. So a couple months later, I decided to go on a mission trip because that's what Christians do um, or what I thought. And I told all my family I'm going on this mission trip. And I thought they'd be so excited because I wasn't going to be selling weed or cocaine or sleeping with girls anymore. And they didn't really respond at all. But I ended up getting enough money for my first mission trip to for me and three of my friends. <laughs> Because turns out a poor Jewish kid wanted to be an evangelist. There's money behind that. So uh, that's kind of a joke. Sorry. And uh, and I brought three of my best friends and we went and served in Nicaragua. And I remember coming home after that experience in Nicaragua um, and being so excited to tell my family. And I knocked on the door and the door was locked. So I called my mom and my mom opened up the garage and I had four boxes and those four boxes were everything in my room. So I had been kicked out of my house. And uh, so I just reached out to the Christian families I knew and kind of bounced around from these Christian families to Christian families. And uh, and that was kind of my, the start of the journey. And I think a lot of people don't hear the verses. The, they're very almost brutal verses about how Jesus redefines family in scripture. Yes. Jesus redefines family in early in the gospels. He says, let the dead bury the dead or, you know, later in his life when someone knocks on the door and says, Hey, your mom and, and brother are here. And he says, Oh no, these are, this, this is my family here. Most people who might be listening to this testimony or, or the people in my church, or the people that are at your church have never really they might read those verses and be like, wow, those are intense. And it's never applied to their life. But to me, I rested in that, even though it sounds brutal. I read those verses and I said, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Jesus said so. And that's what I'm doing. So I ended up being surrounded by some of the most remarkable Christian leaders. I ended up really making myself home at a family um, called the Baldesses. Um, Ken and Christy Baldus. Um, I had played soccer with their older son. So I was there almost every night. And my soccer coach was a believer. I was um, encounter. I, I was approached by a youth pastor who saw um, promise, sorry, developed me named Alan Briggs. 
so I was just surrounded by unbelievable Christian leaders. So um, ended up pursuing ministry at a small college in Indiana. Um, after my first year of school there, I took a year and a half off and was on staff at a church and traveled um, to do missions work. Then I started dating a beautiful, scorching hot redhead that was going to Indiana Wesleyan, so I had to go back to Indiana Wesleyan to pursue her. Her name's Kristen. She's now my wife. Um, so we were at Indiana Wesleyan pursuing the Lord's will for our life, and we thought we were going to be missionaries, so we had started talking to an organization to be missionaries, and um, we were 100% thinking we were going to go overseas, and... Uh, we decided that I was going to do my last semester. I wanted to do my last semester in Israel, and I had won a scholarship to go there and and finish my my Bible and theology degree in Israel. And because I could kind of speak Hebrew and I can talk to a brick wall, um, they asked if I would be a tour guide for pastors on sabbatical. So um, I was my last tour I led. Uh, I was assigned to a pastor on sabbatical named Pete Heiss. And Pete Heiss was there. And we hit it off. Within the first 15 minutes, we found out we were both in the same denomination, that he had planted a church in a bar, and I had experience. At this time, I had already planted two churches. I had planted a church in a tattoo shop that now um, is nine different tattoo shops that meet corporately once a month and then separately three times a month called Ink Church led by Phil Myers, my tattoo artist who came to the Lord. And then through out of, through, out of Ink Church, we had started a bar ministry called Last Call that then turned into a church called Last Call Church. Um, that now is um, led by my good friend Ricky and is in Colorado Springs, Denver, and Chicago. Um, so I had planted two churches, very unique churches, but two churches. And this guy had planted a church in a bar that now is a mega church in Lexington, Kentucky. And after about three weeks of traveling through Israel and rooming with this guy, he had offered me a job to come and start a college ministry in Lexington, Kentucky, focused at University of Kentucky. Um, and I had started also a prayer and worship ministry at the college I went to, Indiana Wesleyan, called The Well. My wife and I and my roommate just desired to create a space for leaders to come get fed. And it's still going on to this day. I just got pictures of my kind of adopted little brother leading worship there, um, which made me cry. Uh, very, very happy tears. But I cry all the time. So um, so we went to University of Kentucky to kind of set out kind of like a church plant. And uh, we just hit the ground running at University of Kentucky. Um, and... I had been warned about this church I was a part of, just of the, their high intensity. and uh, But it, it went back to that concept earlier in my life. The lie I believed was I needed to perform. Um, I needed to be impressive. I needed to compete. I needed to strive. I needed to keep up um, this, this concept of what I thought people thought I was. And ultimately... We can point to the Jews and say, well, yeah, that's who they are. They, they're so religious. They're so based on law. But now being a Christian, being in Colorado Springs uh, for most of my childhood and then at a Christian college and now in the Bible Belt, I'm realizing that most Christians have a new um, legalism. It's the same kind of legalism that the Jews have, but it's painted 
uh, with some Chris Tomlin songs or um, or a big cross on stage. But it's still legalism. And there's still a priesthood model that keeps these pastors at such an exceptional um, value that in the South, I remember getting there and people would, I remember the story that everyone called me Pastor Zach, which was so uncomfortable. My flesh loved it, but my spirit was disgusted. I remember one time, my wife is an ER nurse, and she did, she wasn't able to come to church as much um, because she was working. That one time, we were at church, and I'd forgot something, or my wife had forgotten something, and she kind of said, hey, Zach, can you grab that for me? And two different people yelled back at my wife and said, that's Pastor Zach. And my wife laughed, and she said, no, that's Zach. That's my husband. And uh, but we still have that priesthood model in the church today. The not the Catholic Church. Um, I'm I'm talking about the churches that you might be sitting in that is pointing to this this shepherd teacher, maybe a shepherd teacher, to be exceptional and to open the doors to God's presence for you. Because of the cross, we do not need a priest because Jesus is our priest. And if anything, I'm an associate pastor to Jesus, the lead pastor. And uh, so we still live in this world of a priesthood model. We still live in this world that's legalistic in a lot of ways. There's still taboo sins. It might not be the taboo sins in biblical times of prostitution and things like that. But there's taboo sins of doubt and cynicism. There's taboo sins of... um, Different, different things. I could rattle off the list. So being in Colorado Springs, then going to a private Christian college, then being in the Bible Belt, and then going to a mega church that I was a 24-year-old kid that was sent to start this booming college ministry, and I was preaching in front of thousands of people, and I share those things to paint this picture that there might be people listening to this testimony right now, exp- like, inspired that one day... I will be able to be the golden boy for a church, that I will be the guy that can preach on stage and have fog machines and laser light shows behind me. And you're dreaming of that day. And I'm telling you that you need to go read John 15 and and rest there for the rest of your life. I believe John 14, the Holy Spirit coming, and John 15, abiding in the vine, and maybe a little bit of John 16. If you just hang out there, then you'll be good for ministry. So I go there. I'm preaching in front of thousands of people. We're having people come to Christ um, left and right. There was a season in my life that we would see two to five people come to Christ every week through our college ministry. Just tremendous favor. But I was also working 70, 80 hours a week um, and uh, was really toast. It was really, really toast. And if we look at Ephesians 4.11, it says, These are the gifts that Christ gave to the church for the equipping of saints, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And most pastors or most churches are looking for a shepherd teacher. And what I say is most churches don't have places for apes. The apes are pushed out of churches. When I say apes, I mean in the apostles, the prophets, and evangelists. And you can find most of those apostles, prophets, and evangelists in parachurches, on a mission field, or burnt out from a church. So they are a barista at a coffee shop or rocking some entrepreneurial thing in the world. When, when I see Ephesians four eleven, I see a giant, like 
I see like you know the the big megaphones that cheerleaders used to use, big cones, and they would yell out. And I want you guys to imagine that Jesus is yelling out from the one one side to the church for the equipping of the saints of the church, and that megaphone is made up of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd, teachers. And if you only have a shepherd teacher as a part of that cone, you're going to be missing out on Jesus' voice. So I'm an apostle evangelist through and through. Everything else is way down the list. I used to think I was a shepherd because I went to Starbucks with people. turns out that doesn't mean that you're a shepherd. Um, but I was at this mega church. They wanted me, wanted me to be a shepherd teacher. I enjoyed being a teacher because that means preaching with a cool microphone that hangs over your ear and having people clap and things like that. But um, about four years into that, I was quickly headed towards that scary statistic of young pastors in the first five years burning out. Um, we had experienced four huge moral failures at our church. Um, we had two pastors that were having an affair together. We had another pastor who was having an affair and gambling church money. And then we had another pastor living secretly a homosexual lifestyle. So I was the fifth pastor who kind of tapped out, but not connected to a moral failure, but to really this burnout and a level of intimidation and insecurity. So I resigned from this church and I felt like I was a total failure. But going back to that performance is if we're if we're a Christian that's reliant on performing and we're reliant on the fruit that we're producing and not the vine we're connected to, um, you can feel like you can feel like a lot of rubbish when you find yourself working at a coffee shop figuring your life out. And that's what I really was doing. And I remember really wrestling with this performance and this striving, which leads to so many different things. Um, it can lead towards exaggeration. It can lead to lying. It can lead to unhealthy, um, unhealthy coping mechanisms. So I ended up working at a donut and coffee shop working. I would get there at four in the morning. I would be covered in flour and I would uh, be rolling out dough, making donuts. And I realized that the three or four people I'd be working with, none of them were believers. And it was some of the most evangelistic conversations I had had, even though I had been a pastor for four years in a donut shop. Uh, now I was having the most evangelistic conversations. So I was there and I'd be covered in flour. And I remember people from this mega church that I used to be a pastor at coming into the coffee shop and not understanding why, um, I was at this coffee shop. And I remember, um, this moment when I was all the pastors of my old church had come for coffee and donuts to encourage me. That's what they said. Um, but that was a very humbling moment. And uh, my boss at the coffee shop asked me to go outside and clean all the windows. And they were sitting on one side of this wall of windows. And I knew I was going to get to cleaning the window on the, where their table was. And uh, these are people I used to preach with and, and lead and even some staff. And I remember going to the first one and I said, Lord, like... This is so embarrassing. I, I need your help. And then the next window, Lord, this is so embarrassing. I need your help. And then the third window, the Lord reminded me of this verse that an elder had shared with me um, when I resigned. 
um, who had been a, a tremendous cheerleader in the, in, in the spirit with me, he had shared Galatians 2.20. And he had challenged me that if you no longer live, you're a dead man. And dead men can't get embarrassed. <laughs> and dead men can't get offended. And uh, if, you tr- if you are getting embarrassed, that means your flesh is wanting to live. If you're getting offended, that means your flesh is wanting to live. So um, I had gotten to the window in front of them, and I remember the Lord just had really broken something in me of saying, you know, you no longer live, but I live in you. And uh, a dead man doesn't get embarrassed. So I remember even some of the people at the table looking out the window and making a frowny face or being, I think, feeling embarrassed for me. And I just put my face up against the window and made a funny face. And uh, the Lord had just broken something in Mm -hmm. me. So um, during that time, the Lord had started moving my wife and I's heart of possibly planting a church in uh, the downtown of Lexington, Kentucky. And um, we had been wrestling with that, and our denomination had um, been encouraging us to do that. So um, we went down town to plant this uh or to pray about planting this church and we had and downtown lexington is becoming quite a cool place lots of good food good drinks good coffee and um a lot of millennials a lot of young families um are moving into that area and we had been praying about god where what do you have for us to plant a church uh, is it planting a church downtown we're at this new hip restaurant, and uh, we actually had heard, we felt, we thought we had heard, this is not the place you're supposed to plant a church, which then kind of opened up this huge question of, okay, well, that means my wife is going to get a new job. That means that we'll probably move out of Kentucky. What does this look like? And we had spoken too soon because the Lord said, you're not going to plant a church for those people, meaning kind of the people we had been running into. We had run into a couple of homeless people and there's Section 8 housing, which our heart breaks for that. The Lord opened up our eyes to the brewery across the street that had people spilling out of it, all kinds of millennials, young families, young people. This restaurant that had, had people that, it's a barbecue restaurant. You don't have to look good to eat barbecue, but all these people are dressed up to the nines to look cool at this hip barbecue restaurant. And I just realized that there's a generation of Christians and non-Christians, but Christians as well. I don't want to give you guys a way out. Christians that are all about striving and performing about, we got to look good. We got to find out our calling and our calling has to be epic. And we have to find a a pretty wife or pretty husband. And we got to have a nice car. We have to have a good job and those kind of things. Um, which is really a lot of us are living in this prosperity gospel. That's not prosperity gospel that if we follow God, we're going to get a lot of money or if we follow God, we're going to get a beautiful house. But now in the millennial world, I believe the prosperity gospel is preaching a little bit different that if you follow God, you're going to do something really cool that if you follow God, he's going to give you an epic calling. But what about the ordinary? That God might send you to be a tremendous barista that is a prayer warrior in your closet. Or maybe the most epic call on your life is to love your daughter really, really well. That maybe 
maybe you following the Lord might mean that you're a janitor at a church for a season. One of my good friends who had a radical redemption um, felt called to the ministry and the Lord said, before you lead my people, you have to clean up after him. And he was a janitor at a church for 11 years. And now he's the director of multiplication for a ginormous denomination. What if the most epic call you have on your life is cleaning up toilets at your church? Because if we believe that God loves the janitor just as much as Francis Chan or um, Stephen Furtick or whatever these famous preachers and authors are, then we can rest in the fact that we do not have to strive. Um, so when we heard to plant our church, the Lord said, you're going to plant a church marked by rest. And you're going to teach a, teach a generation how to rest. And I wanted to spend the rest of my time teaching on a couple of passages that have really marked us. Um, we're a small church. We've been around for about um, nine months. But we've seen an abundance of young families and millennials coming to our church because we're saying this is, this is a rest place. This is a place that you don't have to strive. You don't have to compete. Um, we have a 13-person teaching team. And some of them are killer, and some of them are awful, but we celebrate. <laughs> so we have five different worship teams. Some of them are unbelievable. Some of them are meh. But we celebrate, because in the kingdom of God, it's not a place of comparison. It needs to be a place where you thrive. It needs to be, you know, I, I was just reading a book by a good friend um, that said the church should be the greatest crowdsourcing site in the world and crowdsourcing is like a GoFundMe, that the church should be the place where people are being launched out and developed and resourced to do what they're called to do. So um, three passages that really um, hit us hard. Well, actually, I'll, I'll share two and then a word that the Lord gave me. The first passage is one that you'll know probably, but I think a lot of us realize don't, don't realize this passage as a passage um, that's evangelistic. They might use it to encourage or you might use it to um, rest or take a deep breath um, when you're stressed. And this is um, Matthew 11. And this is, um, I'm reading out of the ESV. This is Matthew 11, um, 25. Uh, I would say go to 28 through 30. So three verses. In the ESV, it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And when I realized early on in my journey, um, I had performed as a Jewish kid. I had acted like everything was together when my dad was doing X, Y, and Z to me. And then I go to Indiana Wesleyan and I'm trying to be as impressive and, um, yeah, as impressive I can be in my ministry classes. And then I go to a mega church and I'm trying to do as best as I can. And, um, which isn't bad to work hard, uh, but I'm trying to be impressive. And then I get to this place and I realize that Matthew eleven twenty eight. 29 and 30 is not just a, is not 
a passage to help you when you're stressed, but this is maybe one of the most evangelistic passages in the entire Bible in our time in the world right now. Because we live in a world that people are striving and people are trying to find a good job and trying to be impressive on social media, how many likes they have, how many followers they have, what their Instagram photos look like, what their degree looks like, what their house looks like, whatever it is, we live in a world um, that performs. And I would challenge us that, and I know in my own life, I did not preach um, with my life this message. Um, I did not preach that I that you needed to be yoked to Jesus. Um, and I believe this is one of the most evangelistic passages in the world. I believe this concept of rest can be one of the most evangelistic themes for your church or for your ministry, because when you look at an unbeliever and say, what do you think about being free from striving that you could rest in God's finished work in your life? What would that look like? I think that can be one of the most encouraging, freeing questions that you could ever receive. Because in verse 18, 28, it says, I will give you rest. Saying Jesus gives you rest. We don't do anything but receive it. It says, take upon my yoke. And uh, a lot of people, when they hear rest, it gets a little bit weird. And they say, well, does that mean we just like nap? Like, are you a church of napping? And uh, I want to say the yoke is still a place of work. Uh, you don't yoke your farm animals and let them sleep. They, they are yoked to work. So what I say to my church is the Lord is not against effort. He is against you trying to earn. So I'm going to say that again. He's not against effort. Actually, scripturally, we need to put out our best effort for the glory of God. But he is against you trying to earn. Because when you say, I have to earn this, that means you're looking at Jesus and saying, can you crawl up on that cross one more time? Because the first time wasn't enough. <laughs> so uh, he's not against effort, but he is against earning. And that's Matthew 11, 28, 29, 30. And I believe... That our church is made for that. And I believe that's one of the most freeing verses for me. Growing up Jewish. Um, then going to a high performing, high capacity role in a mega church. And now um, in my current role. The next one. Because I'm Jewish. Uh, there's there's a passage in Hebrews 4. Um, that talks to the Jews that were promised rest. Hebrews 4, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, which is talking about Jesus is offering the rest. Jesus is our new source of rest. And Paul was fearful that people would not be able to enter into his rest because without Jesus being your personal Lord and Savior, you won't experience uh, that eternal freeing rest but um so that's the second passage but i do want to go to my favorite one of my favorite chapters um in the entire bible and that's exodus 16 which i think um paints a really really good picture of our role as ministers which really all of us are remember that this concept of manna Exodus 16 is talking about they're wandering through the desert and uh, they're crying out that they need sustenance, they need provision. 
so God lays out this groundwork of saying, I will provide manna, but you do need to harvest for that manna. And if you harvest too much, it will go bad the next day and stink. And you can, you can harvest extra the last day so you don't have to work on Sabbath. And I think this is a picture of rest because the manna does not come from these people's harvest. They have to harvest, but they're harvesting out of obedience to God and intimacy with God. When I harvest, when I go to Starbucks and I meet with a couple whose marriage is falling apart, the healing for their marriage is not going to come from my work. It's going to come from God. When I preach a sermon, I can put in the right time and harvest, but the knowledge and the power and the authority comes from God. Just like these people, they had to harvest because God asked them to, and they wanted, he wanted them to experience working for it. But the manna did not come from the harvest. It came from heaven. And in our ministry, in our resting, uh, even in this, as I share my story, I can prepare, I can talk, I can share some verses with you. But anything you receive today from this testimony is like the manna from heaven, from God and not from Zach Mirkrebs or my interviewer and dear friend Bruce or the people that have put together this organization. The manna comes from God. And if you work too hard, try to get in front of God, then your, your man is going to stink the next day. So growing up Jewish, uh, living in a world, uh, that I felt like I had to look like I had it all together, even though inside I was falling apart and experiencing sense brokenness. Um, then I go to, uh, I gave my life to the Lord and I go to every single thing I can go to. Then I go to, um, a Christian college and try to be as impressive and edgy as I can in my classroom. Then I get a dream job at a mega church making more money than I thought Christians could make. And I was empty because I was performing. I was performing as a Jew and I was performing as a Christian. And now as a Christ follower who is marked by rest, that's resting in God's finished work, that's resting in John 15. If you have not spent time in John 15, I would challenge you in this new year, soak in John 15. Don't be fruit-focused in this new year. Be vine-focused. When you become fruit-focused, you get disconnected from the vine. But when you get vine-focused, we'll see what kind of fruit comes from. So uh, my challenge for you guys is to be a, a people marked by rest. Um, learn from me being in a place... Uh, being in a, in a place where you're striving and performing and competing, whether inside of the church or out, there is nothing uh, but yuck that will come from that. So be a person, uh, be a church, be a family marked by the rest, but being marked by God's finished work for your lives. That does not mean you can take it easy. Uh, that does not mean you can have a, um, you can be a napping church. It means that you can be a church that is so... Um, awaiting God's provision for your life, um, full of faith and trust. So um, my prayer for you guys is that this testimony is encouraging to you, and uh, I pray that a revolution of rest um, really flows into our churches. Thank you for listening today. I hope you were truly blessed. If you want more information about Testify It, please visit us at testifyit.com. That is T-E-S-T-I-F-Y-I-T dot com. 
If you want more information about Peace Ministries, you can contact them at www.peaceministriesinc.com. Do you have a testimony to share? We would love to hear from you. Just go to testify.com and fill out the testimony form. You can find it at the bottom of any page on the site. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and truly want one, call out to Him today. Decide to give over your life, surrendering it to Him, and choose to follow Him. He has already paid the price for your sins with His death on the cross. He was raised on the third day and will give you everlasting life with Him. You will be born again and He will place His Holy Spirit within you. Until next time, remember, you are loved by God and He deeply desires a relationship with you.